There once was a Florentine merchant who was returning to his homeland, and he carried with him a cart full of treasures that he had acquired in his many travels. During the long journey home, the Florentine merchant found himself in the city of Targovista, the capital of the remote kingdom of Valachia. Targovista was a city renowned for its honesty and security, and so the merchant left his cart outside while he rested for the night in a local inn. When the merchant awoke the next day, he found that his cart had been robbed from during the middle of the night. Specifically, he was missing 160 gold ducats. Displeased, the Florentine merchant went and complained to the king of Valachia. Hearing out the merchant's complaint, the king offered the merchant the chance to spend the night in his own comfortable castle, promising that the thief would be captured and his treasure would be returned. The merchant took the offer and rested. Meanwhile, a call went out from the king, declaring that if the treasure was not returned by the next morning, Targovista would be burned and destroyed, along with all of its inhabitants. When the merchant awoke and returned to his cart, he was pleased to find that his missing ducats, all 160 of them, had been returned. Wait, no, that wasn't true, for there was in fact 161 ducats, one extra than what he had had before. Three times the merchant counted this new amount, and when he was certain he was correct, he returned to the king, saying that he was thankful his treasure had been returned, but that he had been given one extra gold ducat. The fearsome king smiled and told the merchant that the original thief had been caught and impaled in his courtyard, but that if the merchant had not returned to bring back the extra gold ducat, he would have been impaled alongside the thief. And as the merchant left the city of Targovista, the screams of the tortured man chased the air behind him. And as long as this king ruled this distant land of Valachia, the merchant vowed that he would never return. That king was Vlad III Dracula of Valachia, and he was no vampire. But he still was a man who could commit monstrous acts of barbarity. For while his family name is famous, he often goes by another name, Vlad Jepesh, or Vlad the Impaler. He was a man of great power and terrible justice. He was formidable and most certainly a man to be feared. And today, we are going to see what it takes to bring him to your game of Dungeons and Dragons. Hello y'all, welcome to episode 2 of Heroes in History, where we bring history to your character sheets! In this episode, we're going to see what it takes to play the namesake of the most famous vampire in the world, Vlad Dracula, as a barbarian in Dungeons & Dragons. It's episode 2 of Heroes in History. I'm back, I'm back! Oh my goodness, guys. <laughs> um, yeah, if you've been following since episode one, I'm alert alert. But that's okay, I took some time to rest, kind of review what I'm doing with the show, and I'm feeling good. And I'm ready to just deliver a good episode to you guys, and I hope you all enjoy it. However, it bears mentioning that the following episode is going to contain graphic descriptions of medieval violence and torture. I'm going to do my best to make sure that this show is, you know, mostly family-friendly, um, given the nature of the history in question. 
However, viewer discretion is absolutely advised with this episode. In fact, just just this episode in general is not really meant for children. So if you have sensitive ears at all to any of what I just mentioned, please consider turning off this episode right now. It's going to get pretty nasty. Today's episode is going to be our first Barbarian build, and as such, let's go over the history of the class. While not appearing in the original original D&D rules, the Barbarian was still created by the G-Man himself, Gary Gygax, the creator of Dungeons & Dragons, first appearing in a 1982 issue of Dragon Magazine. The biggest inspiration for this class was obviously the character of Conan the Barbarian, the most famous creation of the American pulp writer, author Robert E. Howard, and, just like the biceps of Arnie himself, the biggest draw of this class was raw physical strength. Barbarians use a d12, the biggest hit die, and as such are usually tanks that can soak up tons of damage. Unlike fighters and paladins, though, the Barbarian doesn't really rely on any fancy combat maneuvers. Instead, their key ability is Rage, where they fly into a berserker-like frenzy, causing their physical stats to greatly expand, including their health pools, essentially causing them to brutally finish any poor soul who happens to stand in their way. There are a few technical drawbacks, though, to the Rage ability. While in a Rage, the Barbarian cannot cast magic, cannot wear any sort of heavy armor, and, when the Rage is finished, they suffer a point of exhaustion. Not that this has ever stopped a dedicated player of Barbarians, and while it has been finessed upon since its early stages, the Barbarian class has pretty much always been a popular combat class option, appearing in every major edition as a playable class after their first itch original magazine introduction with 5th edition being no exception. And now I've said class so many times, I feel like I'm back in high school. <laughs> Alright, so it's time for me to lift the shield a little bit and go into a bit of extra detail, not just on the history of the class, but also the nomenclature of the word barbarian itself. Because, at least within the, the context of my little show, barbarian is a bit of a problematic term. The word itself was first used by the ancient Greeks and Romans, and was used to denote and often denigrate anyone who happened to be born outside of those cultures. This includes ancient peoples such as the Thracians, Iberians, and, maybe most infamously, the Celtic Gauls, whom Julius Caesar himself would brutalize in his own conquests. Since then, the term has been shuffled around throughout the centuries and has been used by many other civilizations. For the sake of some expediency, we're going to get to a rather embarrassing example. For you see, I have a background in anthropology, and anthropology as an educational field in particular has a very complicated relationship with this word. The English anthropologist Sir Edward Tyler Burnett wrote in his 1871 work Primitive Culture about the different stages of civilization. In summation, all civilizations progress through different stages of cultural development, beginning with savagery, living in small bands, often nomadic, few permanent structures, limited technology, to barbarism, often just a step above savages in most regards, but often living in more complex social units, such as tribes or chiefdoms, to civilization, the largest so far, living in permanent settlements with deep class division. The problem, though, is that this view was deeply Eurocentric, comparing these so-called lower stages of social development to the might and sophistication of Western civilization. Fortunately, most of this has been decredited as problematic, but it's a dark shadow for the field of anthropology that it sometimes must still reckon with. Yet even then, the word barbarian still occasionally pops up every now and then as an insult. Okay, so what did that tangent have to do with D&D? Well, when you read the original description of the barbarian class, it's kinda sorta 
pretty racist. <laughs> um, you see, not being able to wear heavy armor is one thing. Like, it does have some game logic behind it as a way to give the otherwise strong barbarian class some limitation. That barbarians can't rage in heavy plate armor because if they did, it would restrict their movement. But even this vaguely denotes how one of the ways European cultures conquered so many other peoples was their access to metallurgy. But an even more egregious, less excusable example is the fact that in their original incarnation, barbarians began the game as illiterate. The only way a barbarian could gain access to literacy was if they physically spent the skill points needed to access it, or if they multiclassed. So, when combined with the armor limit, it's pretty clear that the barbarian was built upon very problematic notions. This is terrible. I don't feel the need to say more than that. It's just terrible. Fortunately, though, in the modern iteration of the game, barbarians begin the game as literate, as far as I can tell. Still, while I was and am committed to the concept of the show, it's not like the thought of disqualifying the barbarian didn't entirely cross my mind. So, wait, what changed? What saved the barbarian class? Well, ironically, it was the main draw of the barbarian class itself, namely their rage ability and their capacity to deliver violence. Violence is one of these things that is unfortunately just a part of human nature. There have been many, many people from history who are famous for their rage and violence. It's not a good thing, but as we are focusing on a game where combat is a major aspect of its appeal, it does level the playing field a little bit in who we can cast in this role. Trust me, we will be finding barbarians from all over the world and on all levels of civilization. Or maybe you just want to be a badass, in which case, you know, fine, whatever. Speaking of badasses, though, let's come back to the star of our show, Dracula. Hmm. You know, when I say it like that, maybe I really am just overthinking things. <laughs> uh. Actually, sorry, I have another extended tangent to make. You see, some of you out there are already quite aware of who Vlad the Third Dracula, Voivode of Wallachia, Vlad Jepes, Vlad the Impaler, they're all the same man, was, and you're probably wondering why I'm building him up as a barbarian. Well, I'll discuss a few ideas for optional builds at the end of the build section, but the fact of the matter is that I'm striking while the iron is hot. In the last episode, our first episode, where we built Leonardo da Vinci as an artificer, I related how the concept of the Renaissance itself is misguided, that the Renaissance is argued to be merely the continuation of the medieval period. I admitted that, while I certainly agree with this, what was happening in northern Italy was unique unto itself and showed a significant philosophical and cultural leap forward, at least for the lands mentioned, to war in its own individual epoch. But if there was any contemporary individual to center a counter-argument around, Vlad III Dracula does stand out, that the medieval period lasted much longer than we often realize. In fact, there was a point in history where Vlad the Impaler and Leonardo da Vinci would have been living at the same time, which does kind of blow my mind a bit. Recall that the Gutenberg printing press was invented in 1450 with the Bible and philosophical treatises that helped spread the ideals of humanism to the farthest reaches of Europe being some of the most popular works at the time. And yet, at the same time, Legends of Vlad III Dracula were also some of the first bestsellers. Hot off the press are papers printed with a certain wood carving that shows Dracula dining amongst his victims, men and women impaled on, on stakes, while he just sits at a table and watches while sipping wine. You know, maybe it's just the age and, in a strange way, the fact that it isn't a modern picture, but whew, this carving gives me the creeps. As hinted at earlier, we don't entirely know how much of this man's legend we are to believe. We just don't. 
But the reason why Vlad is here on the show at all is because, from what we have and do know, he was most certainly a brutal and capable leader. And when I read of the actions he took to maintain his realm in the name of his own terrible brand of justice and vengeance, only one word comes to mind. Barbarian. A real, honest, barbarian prince. And woe to all those who, in his own time, crossed him. Trust me, while I am fascinated with this man and the age in which he was born, it is not my goal to paint him as either a hero or a villain. That said, if we were to hold him by modern standards, he would almost certainly be convicted of war crimes. Now, let's talk about this man. Vlad III Dracula's life reads like a fantasy novel of the highest caliber. Born a prince sometime around the year 1428 in a little house in Sigishwara, now in modern-day Transylvania, his life would be one of almost continuous violence and combat. And while I have trimmed some of the following story for the sake of expediency, almost everything you are about to hear as attested to in the historical record is true. Also, for the sake of listener ease, I will largely be referred to him as Vlad Dracula. Let's begin with geography. Vlad would become the king of a land called Valachia. Valachia itself, as an independent polity, no longer exists. It was folded in and along with its historic rivals of Moldavia and Transylvania to become the modern country of Romania in 1859. Unfortunately, we won't be delving too much into the history of modern Romania outside of that which directly correlates with Vlad, though, after doing this episode, I will briefly say that it is my goal to learn a bit more of the Romanian language, a Romance language related to the languages such as French, Italian, and Spanish. But to help you, the listener, more easily visualize the landscape, let's quickly talk about the topography of modern Romania, as many of its features would have been present in the time of Vlad Dracula. Romania as a country sits in what really is one of the great crossroads of modern Europe, situated between Eastern and Central Europe, bordered by Hungary to the west, Ukraine to the north, and Serbia located in its southwest sector. It's crisscrossed by the Carpathian Mountains, and the Danube River runs through it, exiting out of and into the Black Sea. This climate of being in this constant crossroad is probably the most consistent political feature connecting modern Romania to the time period we'll be looking at. Valachia as a kingdom wasn't a large kingdom, but strategically, it was one of the kingdoms that bordered both Western Europe via the aforementioned Kingdom of Hungary to the west, but also the mighty Ottoman Empire to the east. And one very important distinction to help make the following very complicated story easier to understand is that the rulers of Wallachia had to placate the Ottomans and their sultan, yes, but also the Kingdom of Hungary. For while Wallachia was a Christian kingdom, it was Eastern Orthodoxy, whereas the more powerful Hungary was Catholic. Not that that was the only divide between the kingdoms, but it is one of the more prominent. In fact, let me really make this clear. Being a prince, or in this instance, voivode, in this land was barely a luxury and was more of a waking geopolitical nightmare. When reading the history of this time period as centered around Vlad, you realize just how much the presence of the Ottomans completely overthrew the stability of the region. But being a prince in this land wasn't just a nightmare externally, but internally as well. Two of the larger ethnic groups at this time included the Transylvanian Saxons, German-speaking merchants who immigrated to this land via Hungary, and who had special trading rights. Besides them, the other and perhaps more capricious population included the Boyars, the native nobility of Wallachia, who were not afraid to depose of a voivode if it served their machinations. For you see, 
Palakia was ruled by two familial but rival houses that were branches of the larger house of Bazarab. Dracula was part of house Draculeshti, and their rivals were the house Daneshti. We'll return to all of these warring factions later, as both of them would be tragically intertwined with that of Vlad Dracula. Vlad Dracula was the second son of Vlad Dracul, who was the Voivode of Wallachia. He was a member of a religious military order created by the Holy Roman Emperor Sigismund in 1408, called the Order of the Dragon, whose major purpose was to stand against the Ottoman Empire. In fact, the word drac means dragon, and with the added suffix, the name Dracula means son of the dragon. Furthermore, the word drac can also mean devil, so our central player is literally named the son of the devil. As a prince, Vlad, along with his older brother, Mircea II, and his younger brother, Radu the Handsome, would have been given a thorough medieval education. He was, how to, he was taught how to read and write, how to govern, and he would have been taught combat and self-defense. Dracula was probably baptized Orthodox, but grew up mostly practicing Catholicism, and Dracula himself would become a very religious man. At the same time, his father was having to placate the Hungarians, as was the Ottoman Sultan, a tightrope indeed as Wallachia was technically under the suzerainty of the Sultan. One day, Vlad Dracul went on a diplomatic trip to the Ottoman Sultan's palace with Vlad Dracula and Radu the Handsome, whereupon all three were arrested. Vlad Dracul, the father, was soon released, but Dracula and his younger brother Radu were kept as prisoners to assure Vlad Dracul's loyalty. And so, Vlad Dracul returned to the capital of Wallachia, Targovista, assuming that his two younger sons were dead. But they were not. As prisoners of the Sultan, the boys would have been treated comfortably, but were still watched carefully. They were expected to bow and see the will of the Sultan. The younger Radu the Handsome soon acquiesced, even converting to Islam. Vlad Dracula did not. He is said to have been an unruly young man who often had to be punished, which meant being whipped and flagellated, though they were never able to fully break his will. Under the eye of the Sultan, Vlad Dracula was taught Turkish and was also able to observe and learn their military tactics, including their torture habits, which included the act of impalement, which Vlad Dracula would use to devastating and terrifying effect. The father, Vlad Dracul, caught between the brunt of this political hellscape, was eventually caught and assassinated by the aforementioned boyars, who were allied with the Hungarians. Vlad Dracula's elder brother, Mircea II, would also be caught and murdered by these people. His eyes were burnt with a red-hot poker, and he was buried alive. In their place, the Hungarians would install their own vassal, Vladislav II, a Daneshti cousin of Vlad Dracula. Vlad was a very popular name, apparently. Vlad Dracula was eventually released from his time as an Ottoman prisoner, and with his personal retinue, he made his way back to Targovista. He was expected to serve as the Sultan's personal vassal and puppet, with the goal being to turn Wallachia into a buffer state to strike against the Kingdom of Hungary. But he greatly underestimated the young Dracula, who had other plans. First, Dracula made it his goal to uncover the remains of his father and older brother. When the coffin that held his older brother was unearthed, it said that the corpse of Mircea II was facing face down, confirming the report of him being buried alive. Dracula is said to have grabbed his brother's corpse and cried vehemently, swearing vengeance upon his cousin, Vladislav II, seeing that he would kill him in single combat, a promise he would keep. Let's talk about what Vlad looked like. 
Well, by now I've already said a few times how we don't know all there is to know about Vlad. I would say we do know more about him than other people from this time period. This extends to appearance. A legate, a legate from Pope Pius II, Niccolo Modrusa, met Vlad Dracula during his future imprisonment in the court of the Hungarian king. Modrusa would go on to write about his appearance, and this is what he had to say. Vlad Dracula was not very tall, but very stocky and strong, with a cold and terrible appearance. A strong and aquiline nose, swollen nostrils, a thin and reddish face in which the very long eyelashes framed large, wide open green eyes, the bushy black eyebrows made them appear threatening. His face and chin were shaven, but for a mustache. The swollen temples increased the bulk of his head. A bull's neck connected with his head from which black curly locks hung on his wide-shouldered person. Modrusa also painted Dracula, and while that original piece has been lost, many of the later paintings that use that painting as a reference have survived, so we do have a good idea of what he might have looked like. Now back to our story. With Vlad Dracula now the new voivode of Lekia, he made it his goal to deal with the boyars. They were too numerous and were clearly a threat to his rule, seeing as how they had murdered his father and older brother. The story goes that he invited a vast number of them to his halls, and he held a great feast for them. Once the feast was over, he had his guards escort all of them out of the building. All those too old and unfit were then impaled. And so, let's have a quick breakdown of what exactly that means, for even though I don't want to describe this act, it is necessary in relaying the brutality of the act itself. You see, it may be a bit of a misconception that you simply died upon impalement, but unfortunately that simply isn't true. What would happen is that the victim would be tied and held up by horses. Then, a greased-up, sharpened pole that could be anywhere from 8 to 20 feet high would be inserted via the anus or vagina, eventually extending out of the shoulders or mouth. Once this first part was done, the pole would then be quickly planted into the ground, and the victim would usually spend the next few days slowly dying of dehydration or blood loss all the while held up at the top of this pole. It was a hideous and barbaric means of torture. The remainder of the able-bodied boyars were forced to march up the mountains of Valachia for three days, in which many died along the way. Once the peak had been ascended, they were then forced to rebuild and repair the crumbling Panari castle. Now, there are a few misconceptions, not necessarily with this story, but its legacy. Primarily, those concerning which is the real Castle Dracula. You see, while we have a good idea of where he was born, we don't have all the facts in regards to where Dracula was raised, though he most certainly spent a part of his younger life in Targovista. From what I understand, though, Dracula is a fairly big tourist draw for modern Romania, with many locations being held up as a place where Dracula once lived, or visited. In fairness, as a prince, Dracula would have traveled to many parts of this realm, so there is some legitimacy to the claims. One such castle, Brand Castle, is often considered to be held as the de facto castle of Dracula, even though the veracity that Vlad ever spent time here is spotty. But if any singular structure could make the claim, Castle Panari, with its striking red brickwork, makes a strong claim. But more than that, with its high location, it simply was a brilliant place to hold a well-protected fortress. Seriously though, look up pictures of both Bran and Panari Castle, as they are both striking examples of a medieval fortress. Oh, and Bran Castle has a restaurant in it, apparently. Returning to our story. After dealing such a blow to the boyars and eradicating much of the Valachian nobility, Dracula then saw fit to deal with the Transylvanian Saxons, who, besides their wealth and trading privileges, supported his polit political rivals in House Dynasty. He attacked and razed many of their villages in Valachia. 
massacring their inhabitants, impaling their inhabitants, even breaking into Hungary itself at a few points to slaughter Saxon villages that were allied with the ones in Wallachia. It didn't matter if you were young or old, male or female, healthy or sick, if you were one of the people who supported his rivals, you and your whole family would be killed. His rule secured, Vlad began refilling the ranks of the nobility, promoting many peasants to new positions of power so long as they were loyal to him. Indeed, Vlad Dracula was popular amongst the lower classes, and apparently there are still some people in modern-day Romania who claim that the land they own was originally given to them by Vlad Dracula. This does not in any way mean that he was some sort of champion of the people. Dracula was still a capricious ruler who had a special disdain for thievery, as illustrated in the opening story of The Merchant. But the severity of this hatred was not restricted to an individual-by-individual basis, oh no. One story states that Dracula invited many of the poor and beggars from around his realm to a great feast, only to lock and light the hall on fire, stating that their laziness was a form of long-term thievery from the rest of the people. No one survived. He hated laziness. Another story states that he came upon a farmer working in his field, and when told that the farmer's wife was sewing inside, Dracula had her killed despite the farmer's protests. Finally, he hated dishonesty. One terrible legend says that a mistress of Dracula joked about being pregnant, a legend that ends with Dracula slitting her stomach open to disprove her claim. And yet, as long as you were honest and hardworking, you would be safe and treated well. One lighter legend says that there was a well in the village square of Targovishta, I guess, where Dracula placed a golden cup. He said that anyone was free to come and drink from the cup, as the cup belonged to the people. But, if the golden cup was ever stolen, the thief and the entire city would be slaughtered. Suffice to say, the cup was never stolen in his lifetime. Okay, maybe it's not that lighter of a story. In regards to his methods, Vlad Dracula is quoted as saying this, When a man or prince is powerful or strong at home, then he will be able to do as he wills. But, when he is without power, another one more powerful than he would overwhelm him and do as he wishes. Eventually, the Ottoman Sultan came calling, requesting tribute from Vlad Dracula. It's worth noting that this Sultan was Mehmed II, the legendary Mehmed the Conqueror, who conquered Constantinople in 1453 at the age of 21. Mehmed the Conqueror is certainly worthy of his own build in the future, so we won't be delving too much into him now. Suffice to say, he would have encountered Dracula when they were both youths in the former Sultan's palace, and Despite their familiarity with each other, no, it appears that neither was fond of the other. Suffice to say that, when Mehmed II expected tribute, he didn't expect it later, he expected it now. But when Vlad Dracula failed to pay the tribute, Mehmed sent two envoys to talk with the Voivod. Dracula set a trap for the envoys, when he asked them to remove their turbans while they were in his presence. As he was familiar with Turkish customs, he wasn't surprised when the envoys asked to keep their turbans on, in deference to their religious customs. Vlad Dracula then ordered the envoys to have their turbans nailed to their heads, stating that when one enters the realm of a prince, you follow the laws that prince has set. Now, whether this story is true or not, it is not. It is known that the Pope at the time, the previously mentioned Pope Pius II, had made calls for a crusade against the Ottomans, to which Vlad Dracula, living up to the crusader origin of his name, was said to be one of the only ones enthusiastic to war against the Ottomans, even making a few attacks against the Ottoman villages just outside of the Valachian border. Regardless, Mehmed the Conqueror saw fit to break off his current military engagements and deal with the Valachian boy boat himself. In 1461, the Ottomans marched into Valachia, 
with a vast army and much greater military technology than the Balakians, though Vlad's forces did have access to the arquebus, an early form of firearm. But the Valakians also had the familiarity with the land and employed non-direct means of combat. This included hit-and-run attacks as well as a scorched-earth policy, depriving the Ottomans of resources. Vlad also used a primitive form of germ warfare, turning in prisoners who had been infected with the plague. Finally, Vlad himself, with his knowledge of the Turkish language, personally disguised and infiltrated the camps of the Sultan, leading a few extremely damaging night attacks, though they were unsuccessful in killing Mehmed the Conqueror himself. But perhaps Vlad Dracula's greatest weapon was his usage of terror tactics. At one point, Vlad had decimated one of Mehmed's retinues and impaled them and left them outside the gates of Targovishta. A Greek chronicler employed by the Turks, Lenikos Kalkonkdeles, ah, I practice this now, <laughs> described the scene as such. <clears throat> the Sultan's army entered into the area of the impalements which was 17 states long and 7 states wide. There were large stakes there on which, as it was said, about 20,000 men, women, and children had been spitted, quite a sight for the Turks and the Sultan himself. The Sultan was seized with amazement and said that it was not possible to deprive of his country a man who had done such great deeds, who had such a diabolical understanding of how to govern his realm and his people. And he said that, a man who had done such things was worth much. The rest of the Turks were dumbfounded when they saw the multitude of men on the stakes. There were infants to affix to their mothers on the stakes, and birds had made their nests in their entrails. This event would become known as the Force of the Impaled. Now, the exact number of people Vlad had impaled in his lifetime has never been fully counted for. That said, in regards to the war with the Ottomans, Vlad wrote this letter in February 1462 to the Hungarian king, Matthias Carvinus. <clears throat> I have killed peasant men and women, old and young who lived at Oblutsitsa in Novoselo, where the Danube flows into the sea, up to Rahova, which is located near Kilia, from the lower Danube up to such places as some of it in Gigan. We killed 23,884 Turks, without counting those whom we burned in poems, or the Turks whose heads were cut by our soldiers. Thus, your highness, you must know that I have broken the peace. Vlad Dracula did surprisingly well against vastly superior forces, and reportedly even caused the hard-willed Mehmed the Conqueror to lose his nerve at a few points. But the Sultan pressed on. Accompanying him was Radu the Handsome, Vlad Dracula's younger brother, who was sent to replace Dracula as a more favorable vassal of the Ottomans. And here again we have another legend. When it was apparent that Ragdu would be entering Panari Castle, Dracula's first wife, who we know very little about, threw herself off of its steep cliffs, proclaiming that she would rather be eaten by the fish of the Argash River. Again, we have no idea if this legend is true or not, but it is true that there is a tributary of the Argash called Raul Doane, which means the river of the princess, so make of that what you will. Vlad Dracula needed help, and despite the tense relationship he had with Hungary, he still pleaded his case to the king, Matthias Corvinus. Instead, Matthias Corvinus had Vlad Dracula arrested. The exact reasoning behind this move has never been fully made clear, and it appears, and it appears that the move was actually very unpopular at the time. Historians have found forged letters from directly after this event, written in a clearly false hand, pleading partnership with the Ottomans, which would have been greatly out of character for Vlad Dracula. Placed under an extended house arrest, 
Valachia was left in charge of Radu the Handsome, who would himself soon have a sudden death between 1475 and 1477. As for Vlad, this is where legends of his cruelty began to appear and circulate, especially in the German-speaking realm. This is where we have stories describing how he would butcher entire towns, mutilating the populace, and applying the most extreme tortures upon the inhabitants. From one such pamphlet entitled about a mischievous tyrant called Dracula Boda. Dracula had a big copper cauldron built and put a lid made of wood with holes in it on top. He put the people in the cauldron and put their heads in the holes and fastened them there. Then he filled it with water and set a fire under it and let the people cry their eyes out until they were boiled to death. And then he invented frightening, terrible, unheard of tortures. He ordered that women be impaled together with their suckling babies on the same stake. The babies fought for their lives at their mother's breasts until they died. Then he had the women's breasts cut off and put the babies inside head first. Thus, he had them impaled together. One such pamphlet states that Vlad Dracula would spend days impaling small rats and birds he happened to catch while in prison as he was unable to forget his wickedness. Despite the veracity of these claims, there is information here to be gained, as some of these papers refer to precise dates and locales. There are a few other stories here. One states that there was a night watch who were pursuing a thief who happened to hide in the home of Dracula. The night watch broke into the exiled king's home, only for Dracula to behead the commander. The thief was then caught. When asked why Vlad Dracula had committed such a violent act, Dracula said something to the effect of, if he had been strong, the thief would have gotten away in the first place. Dracula also appears to have remarried, in this instance, one of Corvinus's cousins. Really, the true outcome of all this publicity was that this is where Vlad was given his sobriquet, Jepish, which means impaler. Vlad Jepish, Vlad the Impaler. Mind you, no one actually called him that to his face. No, no, no. They called him something even more terrifying. An Ottoman writer apparently referred to him as Kazikli Voivoda, Impaler Lord. Eventually, Corvinus released Vlad Dracula. While it is said that he released Dracula after his conversion to Catholicism, the fact of the matter is that Corvinus probably just needed someone to take control of Valachia, which had become unstable in the absence of Vlad Dracula. Vlad Dracula returned, but with little extra in the way of military assistance and money. Regardless, his reign was short. Two months after coming back to his homeland, Vlad Dracula would be unceremoniously killed in battle in the spring of 1477, somewhere between the age of 45 and 49. The exact nature of his death, as well as his burial place, have never been fully determined. His lineage would continue, but only Vlad Dracula would leave a mark upon the world, becoming the most famous medieval Romanian ruler. In terms of legacy, well, pretty much all that this man is renowned for is his name being used as the titular vampire character appearing in Bram Stoker's 1897 novel, Dracula. The connection beyond the name is tenuous at best. While there is some possible correlation between the two in terms of general appearance and characteristics, it really may just be that Stoker found and used the name, and it's as simple as that. Despite the arguably shaky connection, the fame of the book has ensured that the name Dracula will be eternally famous, as there are hundreds of depictions of the villainous blood-sucking count. My personal favorite, and probably the most famous, is the 1930 Universal Horror Movie starring Bela Lugosi as the titular Count Vlad Dracula. But I'm also a big fan of the character's appearance in the 1992 film Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is an actually terrifying vampire movie. 
that really combines the character with the historical figure in a rather fascinating blend of fact and fiction. That film would go on to inspire one of my personal favorite hardcore old-school mangas, Helsing by Kuta Hirano-sensei, a story that combines the legend with fiction. As far as depictions that aren't related to the vampiric villain, well, those are a bit more rare. Victor Hugo, the author of Les Miserables and The Hunchback of Notre Dame, apparently wrote about Vlad in his La Légion des Siècles. This would have been before the publication of Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is fascinating, but the poem appears to be just a small passage. Vlad Dracula has its own campaign in Age of Empires II, which appears to be accurate to the history as we know it. He was also in one of the Crusader Kings games. The 2000 film Dark Prince, The True Story of Dracula, is not totally without merit, and last I checked, is currently on YouTube for just anyone to watch with <laughs> some of the most hilarious captions I've ever seen. Really, while The Legend of Vlad Dracula, the historical figure, is not readily apparent in the West, in his eastern homeland, Vlad has a bit more of a complicated status. In Germany and Russia, Vlad's cruelty has led to him being depicted as, quite possibly, the prototypical medieval warlord. However, Romanian folklore often depicts him in a more positive light, arguing that his cruelty was used to strengthen the local government. Many Romanian poets and nationalists have dedicated heroic ballads to his memory, while some have been more critical. The house Dracula belonged in, the Draculeshti, was dissolved in the year 1600, and I personally couldn't find any sort of story relating to his modern-day descendants. Really, I think Vlad Jepesh, Vlad Dracula, as a historical figure has yet to give that one truly great depiction. Ah, forget that Game of Thrones prequel or whatever, HBO. Give us the show this man deserves! Or, you know, you could just play him in d, &D. Speaking of which... I am Dracula. Oh, it's really good to see you. I don't know what happened to the driver and my luggage and... Well, and with all this, I, I thought I was in the wrong place. I bid you welcome. Listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. All right, so let's talk about our mission goal for this build. Vlad Dracula is going to be a barbarian, yes, but... As an overall archetype design, he's going to be an intelligent and brainy barbarian, a smart barbarian, as it were. Some of you might already be arguing against this notion, since that's not what barbarians are built for, but after hearing and learning his life story, Vlad Jepesh really was a man with one of the most iron of wills that I have ever read about. The best way to replicate this is by making his soft stats relatively high for a barbarian. In game, Having high soft stats is what will protect your character from being banished or mind controlled, so this is still a very good thing. For stats, we're going to put 15 for his strength. You personally beheaded some of your rivals in single combat. A 14 in intelligence. You were well taught and educated. 
13 in Wisdom, you successfully deduce plots against you. 12 in Charisma, it's slow as you mostly relied on killing your foes, and even then you were still betrayed several times in your life. But it's not like you weren't completely without social grace. 10 for, ex 10 for Dexterity, it's slow, but we'll do our best to make up for it, we just need other things more. And we'll put an 8 in Con, making it our dump stat. Hold up, did you just dump Con? The stat that governs how much health your character has and that shouldn't be dumped for any reason. Yes! Yes, I did. Kidding aside, if you have to dump Khan for one class, make it Barbarian. With their larger health pools, they will be able to take it the best. Really, since Barbarians are such toughies, they are one of the better classes to dump other physical stats with since many of their special abilities help balance the fact. Besides, ultimately, despite your fierceness, you were still eventually beaten in combat. For race... We'll be sticking with Variant Human. Put one of your points in Strength, bringing it to 16, the other in Charisma, bringing it to 13. For bonus feat, we're going to be taking Observant, as you are very carefully always watching the world around you. For the extra point, put it in Intelligence, bringing it to 15. You're able to read lips, and you get plus 5 to your Passive Wisdom and Investigation scores. Take Athletics and Intimidation for your trained skills. For Background, we're going to take Noble, but... There's a bit of room here for your own personal preference. The Noble normally comes with the position of privilege feature, which allows you to be welcome in most places of high society and commoners respect you. However, you could switch that feature out with the Retainer's feature. This grants you three little NPCs who can help you in your tasks and are loyal to your family. Like I said, up to you both are good. Either way, take History and Persuasion as your bonus skill proficiencies, along with the rest of the equipment, taking Turkish or Latin as your bonus language. We're going to begin level 1 as a Barbarian, granting you the Barbarian's famous Rage ability. You have advantage on strength checks and strength saving throws. Your melee attacks do extra damage, and you have resistance to a few different types of damage. However, you can't cast spells while raging. Your rage ends early if you can't attack enough enemies before your turn, and you have to take a long rest before you can rage again. You also get unarmored defense. Your AC equals 10 plus your dexterity and constitution modifier when you aren't wearing any armor, which in your case is only 11. Yikes, that's not good at all. However, the core rulebook says you can still use a shield, so yeah, definitely take that. At level 2, you get reckless attack, which grants you advantage on strength-based melee rolls for your first attack, but leaves enemies open to attacking you with advantage. Danger Sense, the other second level barbarian ability, allows you to have advantage on dexterity-based saving throws against traps and other effects that you can visibly see, as in, you can't be blinded or deafened or the like. Years of fighting in a few different armies has taught you to move carefully. At third level, we get to decide what kind of barbarian we want to be by taking a primal path. Path of the Berserker strikes me as the most appropriate and best option for you. You begin with the ability to frenzy, so that, during your rage, you can make extra attacks on each of your turns, though you will suffer level of exhaustion afterwards. At fourth level, we can take another feat. Take the Resilient feat, which gives us an extra point to put where we want, and then we get proficiency in that stat's saving throws. Put it in Charisma, we definitely need to bump that up even just a tiny bit. We also can't get the saving throw proficiency with this stat anywhere else. At fifth level, we get extra attack, which is hopefully straightforward enough, and fast movement, which increases our speed by 10 feet when we aren't wearing armor aiding us in our hit-and-run attacks. At 6th level, we get our next Primal Path feature, in this instance being Mindless Rage, meaning that we can't be charmed while raging. At 7th level, 
We get Feral Instincts, which gives us advantage on initiative rolls and can mitigate the effect of being surprised. At 8th level, we get to take another feat, and while there's no option for Impalements, thank goodness, the Piercer, f the piercer feat will hopefully be close enough. Increase your strength score by 1 to take it to 17. You also get a few extra effects that let the attacks you make with any sort of piercing weapon all the more damaging. At 9th level, we get Brutal Critical, which allows us to roll one additional damage die when you score a critical hit. Only one die, though, at least for now. At 10th level, we get Intimidating Presence, which will allow us to impose the Frightened condition on an enemy that fails a Wisdom saving throw against you. At the 11th level, we get Relentless Rage, which allows us to make a DC 10 Constitution saving throw should we drop to 0 HP, allowing us to keep one extra hit point. Unfortunately, with our poor Constitution modifier, that's not the best option for us, but it's still better than nothing. At the 12th level, let's try to optimize Vlad a little bit more than not at all. Put both points in Dexterity. At the 13th level, we get our second Brutal Critical die. At the 14th level, we get our last Berserker feature, Retaliation. When an enemy within 5 feet of us attacks us, we can use our Reaction Bonus to make an immediate attack against that creature. At the 15th level, we get Persistent Rage, which allows us to keep raging past the 1 minute time limit, ending only if we fall unconscious or choose to end it for some kind of reason. At the 16th level, we can take another feat. Take the Skilled feat, which will allow us to pick 3 skills of our choice to suddenly have proficiency with. Choose Deception, Insight, and Stealth. At the 17th level, you get your third Brutal Critical die, relatively simple. At the 18th level, we get Indomitable Might. When we roll a strength check, if we so choose, we can use our strength score for the check instead, if the original roll is beneath that. At the 19th level, we can take another feat. Choose the Inspiring Leader feat. After a 10 minute speech, we can give up to 6 allies, including ourselves, a bit of bonus temporary hit points. Oh, and a word to fellow DMs out there, please don't make your players make an actual 10 minute speech. That would just be torture. <laughs> On them. <clears throat> At 20th level, we get the truly wonderful Primal Champion. Our strength and constitution scores both increase by 4. For the former, this breaks the cap by taking our score to 21, and for the latter, we get to mitigate the effects of our terrible constitution by adding an extra 40 HP. Oh, and we get unlimited rages. Rage and violence are now truly just a part of our nature. Alright, now that we're done with the build, let's give Vlad a quick analysis. Well. As stated at the start of the build, we built a slightly non-optimized Barbarian, and with that comes all the pros and cons of that design choice. The thing though is that unless we really tried, Barbarians are one of the more forgiving builds when it comes to alternative design choices. While he might go down a bit sooner than other Barbarians, especially before level 20, he's still going to be dealing very good damage. He'll be better able to withstand spells and other effects that target the mind, he has a few more skill options thanks to the skill feat, and he can rally the troops if need be thanks to the Inspiring Leader feat. In terms of more definite weaknesses, we really weren't able to truly fix his dexterity score, and as such, he has a legitimately bad AC. Also, we really just weren't able to give him any kind of magical damage. Still, Vlad should be able to bring his own brand of barbarism to both the battlefield and the Lordly Hall, which is what we were aiming for. As far as optional builds, Vlad was very close to having a few Paladin levels. To me though, Vlad's nature revolves around the ability to deliver physical punishment of the worst kind, and smiting someone, as powerful as that ability is, doesn't feel true to his character, 
along with the other bonus abilities that come from the Paladin spell list. Furthermore, after our dedication to the Barbarian build and our design choice, Primal Champion is too good to pass up. Still, Vlad would make a fine Paladin, though if you do choose to build him as a Paladin, I recommend the Oath of Conquest option as its tenets most closely resemble Vlad's actual views on the nature of strength. Personally, I wouldn't choose Oathbreaker though. As supremely cruel as he was, Vlad saw his work as necessary, and he didn't view himself as legitimately evil. As for an alternative Barbarian build, I did also consider Path of the Zealot, but I would choose that if I was wanting to play up the vampiric aspect a bit more, as much of that path's abilities revolve around coming back from the dead and revivifying the troops. A solid option, but as I was trying to focus on separating Vlad from his vampiric legend throughout this episode, I didn't feel like this was appropriate. In terms of role-playing Vlad, well, of course you can play him however you see fit to, but personally, I don't think you should play him as any kind of straight-up serial killer. Despite his barbarity and sadistic nature, the fact is that most serial killers focus on hiding and not being caught. That's not the case at all with Vlad. He's a medieval lord who wants to be seen and who is deeply focused on ruling and strengthening his realm by any means necessary. I'm not the biggest fan of serial killer history, but from what I understand of their psychology, most serial killers don't want to be caught and they remain in the shadows. Even given his princely dis disposition, I simply do not feel like this is in Vlad's nature. As for role-playing this setting, well, I'd really recommend focusing on just the unforgiven nature that comes with having your kingdom set between two larger forces and just having to be tossed around by both. Your PCs could be nobles who have to somehow placate and survive and fight against this absolutely unforgiving world. Now, I've mostly done my best to avoid comparing Vlad to his vampiric namesake, but in terms of mood, playing up this medieval, gothic, gory landscape makes for an emotionally powerful and terrifying description. It's a compelling setting to be certain. Oh, and it's time for a sort of new section of the show where I recommend a song to go with aiding your concep conception of how to play this character, but since I didn't do this for Leonardo da Vinci, I'll retroactively do this for him real quickly. For Leonardo da Vinci, who again did live at the same time as Vlad Dracula, I'm going to pick Civilization by Justice. For Vlad Dracula, I'm going to pick Valachian Warlord by Folk Earth, which is fitting since it's a song about him to begin with. To reiterate, I highly re recommend both songs when playing these characters, especially the latter. It's a bloody good song. Alright everyone, that's the end of the episode. My name is Punkrock, H-A-N. Despite the focus on violence and torture of this episode, I hope you had fun listening to me relate the story of the Valachian Warlord. The story of Vlad Dracula is really compelling. In our next episode, we will be building a bard and... Here's the riddle as to who it will be. <clears throat> the pen and the stage take center place. When it comes to the gift of Gab, his is the number one face. Oh, snap. Special thanks to BT Newberg and Rachel Westhoff for the fantastic logo art. Go check out their shows, Dead Ideas and The History of Sex. They are both fantastic. If you have any questions, send them to the way of my email address at punkrockajpodcasts at gmail.com. And remember, the die is mightier than the sword.